You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, good morning, America. This is Pete Macca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I cannot tell you how thrilled I am today to have my very, very special guest. I love this lady to death. She, she retired from the military. She retired from the Sheriff's Department. She is a rare gem. She is a jewel. And her name is Peter, just like me. Good morning, repeat. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you this morning? Well, still kicking after all these years. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Pete, uh, let, let's start with the basics. Uh, where were you born and raised? I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was raised predominantly in Chattanooga, except for when I went to visit and stay with family in Oklahoma. Well, why would you go to Oklahoma? Well, I am, uh, I guess you could say a half-breed. I'm Cherokee, <laughs> and I, I have family that was located on the reservation in Tulacoya, Oklahoma, and I went to right. stay with them. Okay. How did you get the uh, first name Peter, being a lady? Well, <laughs> that's an interesting story. No, my dad did not want a boy. Uh, <laughs> it just happened that um, in a tradition, when a child is born and they live and they pass away, some part of that child needs to continue to exist. When the next child comes along, a name that was given to the first child is bequeathed to the next one. I had a brother. He, um, Peter Allen. He lived for three months. He died of crib death, now called mm-hmm. SID. And when he died, it was several years before my mother uh, got pregnant again. And um, my father said, we are going to make sure that Peter lives. So Peter's going to be the name of this child. This was before they found out what the baby was going to be. (laughs) 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 They didn't have that technology then, and then out pops this girl, and my mother's like, Oh, heck no. And he said, yes, Peter's going to be a first name. And my mother said, well, she's going to have a middle name, and it's going to be Elizabeth. But Dad said, Peter Elizabeth it is. And that's how I come about being Peter Elizabeth. Peter Elizabeth Wolf. I think it's a great name. I love the first name Peter. Right, repeat? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, now, your dad uh, was a World War II veteran who served in the Pacific. Uh, tell me a little bit about your father's service in the Pacific. Well, my father <clears throat> was with the 136, and he was trained as an infantryman. And his job in the Pacific, besides being an infantryman, was to be assigned to logistics quartermaster at that time before transportation broke away and became a separate branch of its own he drove a deuce and a half and he drove an ambulance but he um 
he didn't talk much about what happened to him. Um, I could tell that it was painful because my father said, of course, he didn't fight in the, you know, European theater, but to him, the Japanese were the most savage people he had ever came across. And it took a lot to get stories out of him. But there was one story that I'll never forget. And it wrapped around a rifle. I played with that thing all the time. (laughs) And my father told me finally the story of the rifle. It was on some island. He didn't tell me where, but it got down to where it was combat. And it was between him and this Japanese soldier. And my father said, I knew that somewhere along the way, one of us was not going to make it, and it wasn't going to be me. That's not going to go home. And that's how he came across having this Japanese rifle. And I do remember the first day I met you and interviewed you, I walked into the uh, room, and you were holding a Japanese-type 99 rifle, and I'm saying, ooh, I hope she's not mad at me. <laughs> okay. My father, your, uh, yeah, your father, yeah, your father was a police officer in Chattanooga. Uh, tell us a little bit about his job up there. My father, um, after the war, like a lot of servicemen, was hard-pressed to find a job. And he decided to become a police officer because after, well, during the war, my father served as an MP at Fort Oglethorpe. Fort Oglethorpe not only was the second largest WAC training center, but it was also a POW camp for Japanese and uh, German prisoners that were shipped back to the United States. So he had some experience at being an MP when he was returned back to the United States on emergency family leave. So he applied to the Chattanooga Police Department. And his first assignment, like all rookies, was foot patrol in some of the hardest and roughest parts of Chattanooga. He later on went to the traffic division and then... He advanced up from there, being promoted to a sergeant, assigned to Baker section, and he uh, continued and got promoted to lieutenant. Wow. And he served for 35 years, and he was the first police lieutenant that didn't stay in the office. My father was the first one to say, my office is my patrol car, and I'm going to be out there where my men are. So my father served in the field as a lieutenant. Couldn't get him to stay in the headquarters. His captain was always, your job is not to be out there. And he said, yes, it is. Wow. Wow. Okay. Pete, uh, we are going to our first break. We'll be right back with Peter Elizabeth Wolf. And she'll be discussing her time in Florence, South Carolina a little bit. And also what life was like on Indian Reservation in Oklahoma. We'll be right back. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend 
is Around Town Movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with uh, Peter Elizabeth Wolf, a retiree from the United States Army as officer and also a retired sheriff's deputy. Pete, uh, uh, I know you've got Cherokee Native Indian blood in you, and you used to spend some time in Florence, South Carolina, I think, during the summer. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, my mother's family, um, after leaving the reservation, my grandfather became a sharecropper, and his specialty was cotton and tobacco and one of the things we would do during the summer is go help on the farm and boy I tell you picking cotton I can tell you about it harvesting (laughs) tobacco I can tell you about it (laughs) yeah real easy right just just real simple stuff oh yeah right Um, and, and I know you went out to, I know that was tough, but you told me a lot about the uh, Indian Reservation out in Oklahoma. I think a lot of people would like to hear your comments uh, about reservation life. Reservation life was hard. The My grandparents and family members basically stayed with traditional Cherokee living. That's living in a lodge, usually that had dirt floors, wood-burning stove, no indoor plumbing or electricity. That's how I grew up. I grew up in a hardship of knowing how to do without what people take for granted. And if anybody ever went to a reservation when I was growing up, it had a way of making you think, my God, this is worse than a ghetto. The living conditions were hard. The people were broken. They were living in a place where they didn't want to be at because it was so far removed from their ancestral grounds. You take people that grew up in the South where you have rain and foliage you put them out in a desert, and they have to make do with what they've got. There was high substance abuse, alcoholism, unemployment, suicide. No ethnic group in the United States has the highest percentage of these areas of concern than on Native American reservations, and they were losing 
they're young people. Young people were not staying on the reservations. They were beginning to lose their traditions. They were losing their cultural awareness. So there's a lot of sadness, a lot of idle time to think about what they had, where they came from, and where they ended up at. You know, I, I, I don't know if you knew this, Pete. I served, uh, uh, I studied Native American history in college. And um, I, I like that post I see every once in a while on Facebook that has a nice picture of an Indian brave up there. And uh, it says, uh, the federal government told us they'd take our guns and take care of us. <laughs> Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Uh, your family, though, was, was very patriotic. I believe you had an uncle that was on the ill-fated USS Indianapolis. Tell me about that guy. My uncle Freddie <clears throat> joined the Navy because um, that's what he wanted to. Do. He um, he grew up where there was no water, <laughs> wasn't close <laughs> to any water, and why the heck the Navy was calling to him? I have no idea, but. Um, he was the firstborn. My mother was the second oldest of 16. All of wow. my uncles on my mother's side of the family served in the military. But it was my Uncle Freddie that I managed to get to talk to me because I was in the service. And he served on the USS Indianapolis. And we all know the story of what happened to this. Indianapolis. He was um, transferred just before its ill-fated delivery of the bomb to the U.S. Oh, wow. Alabama. But my Uncle Freddie didn't talk much about what he lost. He was very private, but he lost so many friends. And he became an extremely religious man, believing that it was God's intervention that transferred him before the Indianapolis went down. Wow. There's so many unbelievable stories about World War II. We'll never see the, the, the like of that generation again. Uh, Pete, tell us a story about when you told your dad uh, that you want to be a cop, too. What did he tell you? <laughs> Well, I think it. I think the first words were "hell no." <laughs> my father was my hero. He was the single most important person in my life. I admired him for what he did, and I wanted to follow in his footsteps. My father was a very caring man and helpful. And the stories he told me when he'd talk about his job, I thought, man, I want to do that. And it was from my father I found out that he was fourth-generation law enforcement. My oh. family has served in law enforcement and in the armed forces. So I told him, I want to be a cop. And he goes, hell no. <laughs> and I'm like, why? And he said, daughter, you do not understand the worst of our society, and I see it every day. And I'd rather shoot you myself than to know you get in a situation to where you're going to get shot. 
And he wow. said, I have no problems with you joining the military. And I said, okay. So I joined the military. Well, yeah, you went, uh, yeah, you went to UP at Chattanooga, and you broke some barriers there. Go ahead and tell the listeners about that. I was the first female to sign up for the ROTC program when they opened it up in the colleges in 1973. I'd already been in college for a year. Roderick Nix was an African-American student, fellow student that I was helping tutor him in English, and he was already in ROTC. And I guess from my bubbly personality and my adventurous spirit, he said, hey, have I got a deal for you? <laughs> and it sounded like it was so much fun that he said, why don't you join ROTC? Now, I'd already served enlisted. And he said, this way, when you finish the program, you'll get commissioned as an officer. And an officer is better than enlisted. <laughs> At least get paid better. So I signed up for ROTC. I was the first female, and boy, was it rough. That was another change that took place that caught people off guard, that women wanted to go into the military to serve. And I ended up having to take the male PT physical fitness test, I had to wear male uniforms before they finally, <laughs> you know, got the uniforms made for women. But I stuck with it, and I became the first female that was commissioned from UTC and in the state of Tennessee. Wow. Well, congrats. So, so you tapped into the all-boys club, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> that was the boys club for sure. That had to be rough. Okay, you got so you got your butter bars, your commission as a second lieutenant. What was your specialty in the reserves and active reserves? I was a transportation officer. When I was enlisted, I was a truck driver. They called us 64 Charlies, but we called ourselves 64 Clutches because <laughs> everything was a stick. Yeah. And that was the first time I got to drive. I didn't have a driver's license until... I was in the military, and you didn't need a driver's license to operate a military vehicle. So I learned to drive a quarter-ton truck starting off, graduated to a two-and-a-half-ton truck, five-ton truck, and when I got commissioned, I was the first female assigned to the 212 Heavy Truck Transportation Unit, which had the 10-ton trucks and the old dragon wagons. They were tank wagon what? Oh, tank hauler, Okay. Yep. I bet that and, was fun. Well, <clears throat> I graduated from the 10-ton because when the Army upgraded, it came out with the PET, Heavy Equipment Transporter, which was a 22-and-a-half-ton truck. They had to upgrade the old 10-ton trucks because the Army was converting over to Abrams, and the 10-ton truck and dragon wagon couldn't haul the Abrams tank. So I learned to operate a 22-and-a-half-ton truck. <laughs> and I'd say my most favorite memory of being the only officer that was licensed or certified to drive a 22-and-a-half truck was when we um, 
we had to haul 80 tanks. We hauled them from Central City, Kentucky, down to Anniston, Alabama, and took the refurbished Abram ones back to Central City, Kentucky, to the National Guard there, and we did 80 tanks in two weeks. Wow. Wow. Okay, I'll tell, moving along here, you are now a captain. You're assigned to the 2nd Army as a transportation officer at Fort Gillum, and all of a sudden, things start popping over there in, in the Gulf, uh, the Persian Gulf. Tell me a little bit about the Persian Gulf and how you had to prep the Army for that. Well, the reserves were, you know, exactly that. They were to round out the active duty Army. When the Gulf War started up, we realized that there were a lot of units that were no longer active duty. They were placed in the reserves, such as your water purification units, your heavy truck units, your marine terminal operations. Except for the 96th transportation unit down at Fort Hood, Texas, all of your other heavy truck drivers were in the reserves. Your water purification were all in the reserves. Active duty was combat heavy, but the reserves was logistically heavy. So we had to start activating all of these reserve units to prepare them to round out the needs of the active duty army. So I was assigned to the logistical talk um, at Second Army as a transportation specialist. But I also had to work with um, fellow logisticians on activating reserve units and getting them prepared. I mean, it, we still had M14s in the reserves where the really? Army had M16s, yes. I, I qualified on an M14, and uh, we still had the 45 caliber pistols. So we had a lot of outdated equipment and weapons that didn't match what they had on active duty, including uniforms. So we had to start merging units, and it became an old crap mode. We were... <laughs> Breaking units and realigning them Peter, with other units break. to round them out so that we can merge them with active duty units. And we got into fights with governors, unit commanders. Everybody wanted to have their own little kingdom with their unit. Pete. And I spent 16, 18-hour days in the talk working with governors and reserve units and National Guard units, trying to calm them down and <laughs> trying to get their statuses as to what the people were prepared for because Pete. reserves are civilians. They're, they're not ready to grab an M-16 and go marching off to war. They had families. They had businesses. You, had yeah, you know what? Yeah, we're going to our second break and when we get back i want to tell you to tell the folks exactly what it's like to have to get these people ready to go to war folks we'll be right back 
Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Peter Elizabeth Wolf. Uh, so much admire this lady. A, a, a remarkable, remarkable career. All right, Pete, you're getting the United States military ready to go to war. Tell the folks a little bit about getting these young men and women ready to go to fight in the Persian Gulf, what they have to go through, what you have to go through. (laughs) Well, let's just say that um, trying to get them ready to go to war was like a herd of turtles racing across a field of peanut butter. (laughs) The Pentagon was caught totally off guard about what it would take to mobilize civilians that were in the reserve. We're talking about doctors with their practices. Who's going to take over their patients? We had people that had mortgages, leases. We had parents that were also in the reserve. Who was going to take care of their kids? Who had power of attorney? Who had wills? So we had to gear up active duty and reserve JAG offices to try to get their administrative needs taken care of, insurance policies, wills. They had to find out who was going to take care of the kids. We had to work with companies and, you know, uh, mortgage companies so that they would understand that all of a sudden a guy who's a doctor who's, you know, going to be making a heck of a lot less being mobilized as a doctor in the military may not afford his mortgage and it was just like when I tell people I literally slept under my desk in the talk that was because it was a 24 hour effort to try to get these people ready and get them everything they needed tell them where they're staging area is, get them ready to get to where they had to go for training. All of them had to go through some training before we shipped them over to the Gulf. People don't think about that. I I remember you called the Pentagon the Puzzle Palace. (laughs) I I think you had your hands full. (laughs) It hasn't changed. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now... This this is also something people don't understand. Once the shooting started, once the war commenced, uh, you had to plan for when the shooting stopped. Tell us about that. Well, 
getting them over there, after we finally got them over there, we didn't realize how fast it would be over with. Uh, <laughs> we got word of, uh, you know, the the enemy suddenly saying, whoa, we, we've done poke the bear the wrong way. It, we drew one breath, and the next breath was, oh, crap. Now we've got to get these people back. We've got to get the equipment back. And at that time, you know, we were planning on having to put together the JAG people again, getting everybody ready, working with um, ships that we contracted to take them over there to get the equipment back. And then that was sorting out what belonged to the reserves and what belonged to the active duty people. So once again, we were back on 16 and 18 hours within a week after the shooting stopped. (laughs) Oh, that had to be one big headache. It was, but I think the bigger headache was when the people up in Washington said, wow, we've got to remind the people of what we did. And everybody that made the sacrifice to go over there needs to be recognized. So they came up with the idea of we're going to have a parade in Washington, D.C. Because we had some bugs. We worked them out. We got the reserve National Guard unit up and running, activated. They were doing active duty. And they wanted the people to see that we were prepared if ever this happened again. Lessons learned from this one. And we wanted to give them that recognition. So Second Army ended up with training um, all the people to get ready for the parade. Huh which means we had to coordinate with Washington, D.C. on how it was going to be, who was going to be in it, and it was another headache, (laughs) to say the least. Another herd of turtles racing across a field of peanut butter, right? That's right. This time, (laughs) they're trying to bring them back to the ocean, you know. I felt like they were swimming against the sharks. (laughs) You, uh, your later assignments include the Pentagon and in Germany with the 3rd Army, Patton's old unit. You had a command post at Sunny Point, North Carolina. But you have some vivid memories of Bosnia. Tell the listeners about Bosnia. Um, excuse me if I get a little choked up, but... Um, okay. Bosnia is something that um, I can't forget because it was so inhumane. When I went to Bosnia, I was there as a um, liaison officer to MITNIC, Military Traffic and Movement Command of Europe. I was there to make sure that equipment got in and I coordinated between units that were moving in and moving out of Bosnia, and I went into the box, as we call Bosnia, and if people forgot about Bosnia, 
there were landmines. It was a war that was so unfair that the civilian populace suffered the most. You had the Croatians, you had the Serbs fighting against each other. It was almost like an ethnic cleansing thing to where there was no regard for anything except for who was wanting to win. My first two weeks in Bosnia, I had to go to several places with an escort, uh, armed escort, and it was to clear out places where we could consolidate equipment for shipment. And I don't think I saw one complete child. The children were the ones that were most of the time finding the landmines. They all had something missing. They had arms, legs missing. They were the ones that would go out into the fields to prepare the fields for the crops. And because only the people of that local village knew where the mines were, they didn't know where the counter mine fields were planted by the opposites. And I went to Sarajevo for a conference. And remember, Sarajevo, just two years before the Bosnian War broke out, they had the Olympics. That's right. You would never have recognized Sarajevo if you watched the Olympics. You would have never recognized it. Was it uh, destroyed? Well, I remember going to the skating rink where they had the skating event. Yeah. And the arena itself was so pockmarked with holes from explosives. And the buildings that they spent so much money on trying to put together the Olympics, which is not cheap, were destroyed. There was nothing that could be salvaged of them, whereas in other cities where they have Olympics, they reuse those buildings. They refurbish them and use them for events or or for other things, but there was nothing of Sarajevo that could have been used for anything. Wow. Pete, for our listeners, and they may have forgotten about Bosnia, explain exactly what happened between Croatians and and the, the, uh, what was the Muslims or or the uh, Serbs? Explain that to people. The fight, uh, the fight between the Serbs and the Croatians was an ethnic thing, and it stems from World War II. After the war, um, they didn't get a choice as to what was going to happen to them. So what they did was they had a dictator that came in, and what he did was basically tell everybody, you're going to live in peace, or I'm going to wipe out your whole family. So the Serbs who turned in 
the Cur- the the Croatians because they were Muslim to the Nazis created that hostility because the Serbs were Eastern Orthodox. They were Christians. And in order to not be eliminated by the Nazi Germans, they turned in their fellow countrymen to the Nazis who were not for Islam. And that spilled over once again into the coming of the Bosnian War, where wow. they they didn't forget that. And so it, it was an ethnic cleansing. You know, Pete, that, that I guess you being in a situation like that, and me being in somebody else's civil war in Vietnam... Uh, although it's against communism. And we got people just, they speak ghibli about civil war here and revolution here and uh, taking to the streets and everything else. I don't think people realize what they're really talking about. Uh, you and I have seen it. We smelled it. We tasted it. Uh, we sure as hell don't need it here on the streets. I think you agree with that. I'll tell you right now. I get so sick of listening to people say, oh, it looked like a war zone. How the hell would you know what a war zone looks like? (laughs) I agree. I agree. Um, But your experiences in the military, that that also helped you uh, transition to something you really want to do. You retired as a major. And the same day you, that was the same day you graduated as a Rockdale County Sheriff's Deputy. Is that correct? Yes, it is. The day I graduated from the Fulton County um, Academy was the same day that I was placed in the retirement roles of being a a reserve officer. I, um, I had promised my father that I would not go into law enforcement as long as he was living. So when my father passed away, I got my orders to go to Bosnia. When I came back, I had made up my mind. I was going to become a law enforcement officer and follow in my father's footsteps and become fifth-generation law enforcement. God bless you. uh, Peter, Peter, we're going to our last break, and we're going to come back and let you talk a little bit about your police work and some comments and some of your opinions. Folks, we'll be right back. Please stay with us. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with uh, uh, Peter Elizabeth Wolf, one of my favorite people. Uh, Peter, you retired as a major and went to work the, that same day as a Rockdale County deputy sheriff. That's something you've been wanting to do all your life. Tell us a little bit about your police work. When I uh, got accepted by the sheriff's office, I um, <clears throat> I was the oldest person they had sent to the academy definitely the oldest female i was 45 went to the academy at 46 i um when i graduated i was placed on morning watch which was the midnight shift i was the only female on morning watch for the first four years they didn't have many women that were mandated officers on the road with rockdale at that time they had one on evening watch, and then they had two on day watch, but I was the only female on morning watch. I was an over-the-road deputy. Our mission is to answer calls for service, and that's what I did. I answered calls. I patrolled Rockdale County, the second smallest county in the state of Georgia. <laughs> you can get from one end of the county to the next one in about mm, 25 minutes if you're going like yeah. sirens. I do but, remember. Um, <laughs> I stayed over the road for 13 years, worked right. morning watch 13 years. And then I uh, applied to go to um, become a investigator with the Office of Professional Standards, which is also IA. I worked in that office for about two years, and then I went to CID, which criminal investigation, and I worked with criminal investigation, and they transferred me to become an investigator for the traffic or special ops. And then in my last uh, two and a half years, um, I was assigned to the courthouse. And a lot of people think that the courthouse is a crip job, but it's not, because you have to deal with the public. And if you want to think of a place that things can happen at, wait until you're working security at a courthouse and somebody comes banging out of a courtroom because somebody they love just got sentenced. You've got to keep a cool head, and you've got to have a demeanor that is going to de-escalate a situation of high emotion. So I rounded out my 20 years when I retired from the Rockdale County Sheriff's Office on December 4th from the courthouse. And it's been an experience, and I hope and pray that I did my father proud. Oh, I, Peter, I, I will say that your father's looking down and smiling broadly, okay? Uh, you, uh, our station manager and owner, David Moxon, lost his best friend 
to Agent Orange, and I believe you lost someone to Agent Orange that you love too. Tell the folks about that. While I was at Second Army, I I met a man that I'd only known telephonically for seven years before I ever saw his face. It was Lieutenant Colonel Robert Timian. He was working in uh, the death rim or the finance, and then he was in the JAG. He became my husband. Uh, Bob served three tours of Vietnam, and he was the best friend I ever had. He was uh, the best thing that ever happened to me. And unfortunately, not long after we got married, he was diagnosed with having Parkinson's. And eventually, through fighting with the Army and fighting with uh, Americans with Disabilities, we established the fact that one of the things that came out of Vietnam and exposure to Agent Orange is Parkinson's. So he got exposed to Parkinson's or to Agent Orange and to develop Parkinson's because he was with the 1st of the 505th PIR, which is, you know, Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 82nd Airborne. And then when he was in Vietnam, he was an advisor to the South Vietnam Army trying to help them fight their own war. That was the plan. When they started talking about withdrawing troops from Vietnam, so his job was to go out with the little brown men, as he called them, and try to teach them how to fight their war. And he even worked with the Montagnard. Uh, yeah, tough people don't know. The Montagnard were considered the indigenous people of Vietnam, basically like the American Indian is the indigenous people of America. They were known by their own people as savages. But they they were the ones that knew how to really do guerrilla warfare. So he served three tours of Vietnam, working as an advisor, advancing to being the senior advisor, um, but still being the only U.S. Army soldier with a squad or platoon of South Vietnamese military, he was the only one that had a radio. Hmm. And there would be nobody else that could use that radio. Any call for assistance, doing a call forward for artillery, if anybody's voice other than his came over that radio, he was out of luck. Wow. Well, and I think he, go ahead. He passed away, matter speaking, on January 30th. He passed away nine years ago because of the complications of Parkinson's brought on by Agent Orange. Wow. I know that uh, I have interviewed two nurses who served in Vietnam. They have Parkinson's, and people say, well, how'd they get in contact with Agent Orange? They were nurses. They had to cut off the uniforms of these soldiers who were in surgery or going to, to get the treatments, and those uniforms were laced with Agent Orange. 
coming out of the jungle and things. So uh, this is, a, a, well, as you know, Agent Orange is something that we Vietnam veterans are still fighting and will be fighting it to our graves. So I'm very sorry for your loss. I know that he was a, a hell of a warrior being in the 82nd Airborne. Yes, he was. Yeah. He was a hell of a um, I know he was. Uh, okay, you are a retired police officer, and you see what's going on in this country. Now, let's talk about defunding our police, and give me your thoughts on it. Go Be, be honest. Go ahead and take a shot at it. <laughs> Some people may want to put the fingers in their ears when they hear this. No, but I think they want to hear it. Go ahead. My father had a saying, ignorance can be fixed, but stupidity's forever. <laughs> These people that talk about wanting to defund the police department, you know, it takes money to train policemen. When you defund a police department, what are you going to do? You're taking away training from them. We are trained on how to do our job. And we're doing our job based on a lot of studies that are put in on how we can get that split second of observation or how to handle the situation. A criminal already knows what he wants to do. He's already made up that that decision. He's made it as whether he's going to fight or flight. A lot of our training is based on scenario, like in a judgmental shooting scenario, and actual live judgmental shooting in our in-service training. That takes money. When a department is defunded, they're going to have to figure out how are we going to train because the things that don't come into training is how you're going to protect your police officers. Vests have expiration. Vehicles break down. Ammo costs money. Everybody has to go through training, and every year we have to qualify. There's no other company besides the military that is put through such an extensive and intensive training as law enforcement because we are the soldiers of our civilian populace. We enforce laws. We don't make them. And we have to have the training in order to keep out of the crosshairs of the public that doesn't understand our damn job. The people that are screaming about defunding especially up in Washington, half those people have never understood what a policeman does. You're a lone guy out there in a prowler answering calls that, at best, is unknown trouble. That's the best dispatch can give you. And in situations that you're going into, you've got to have the best equipment and you've got to have the best training to do that. When an agency is left with the decision, well, do I cut my training down from 40 hours to 20 hours? Do I cut down how I'm going to train these guys on judgmental shooting, which is the key to what police officers are always being criticized about? You want these people to understand it's open for you. If you want to find out what I do, 
most agencies have what's called a Citizens Academy. People can sign up for it. They can go through it. They can put, put through judgmental shooting training. They can go out on a range and learn what it's like. They can be put in a prowler with a police officer, and they can ride with them. The only wow. difference is when the crap hits the fan, they have to put these people out of their car. So the only thing they see is what Hollywood wants to produce on TV. Well, Hollywood can't ever produce what you see in real life. And the only reason why the people in Washington now want to defund is because they don't know what we do. And they want to have the populace that wants to change everything and make it okay to be a criminal so they can continue to be in the lifestyle to which they've grown addicted to. What, 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 you, you're still in touch with uh, officers uh, in law enforcement. What's their morale like now? Well, the morale is, the morale at most is, is at the lowest point it can possibly get. I mean, when you are out there now and you can no longer think about, will I get to go home at the end of my shift, your main focus is on, am I going to be charged with something because... I responded to something that I viewed as a threat, and you want to second-guess me? You weren't there. You don't know what happened. It's like the handcuffs are no longer going on the criminal. They're going on the police officer. Oh, I love that statement. I love that. Pete, I need to have you back sometime just to talk about police enforcement. I think a lot of people need to learn exactly what it's like to be a cop these days. Gotta go. We are out of time. Uh, repeat, this has been a heck of interview. Thank you so much for doing this. I think people learned a lot today. I love you to death there, Peter. You take care of yourself. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.